Welcome to episode 36 of Frank Reactions, the show where we help you profit from the digital era through better customer experiences online and off. My name's Tema Frank. For many years, my parents would spend their winters in Coronado, uh, which is basically a little sand spit that runs off of San Diego. It is an amazingly beautiful place, and my parents went down there because the rest of the year they lived in Canada, and my mother had uh, severe cold-triggered asthma, and down there she could breathe easily. They lived in a complex of buildings called the Coronado Shores. There were, I think, about six or seven buildings, high-rises, and they were very expensive, particularly to own. My parents rented, and it was kind of funny because every year we looked at ownership and looked at the prices and thought, that's ridiculous, it makes more sense just to rent. But the prices continued to go up, even all these years later. Anyway, so these were not uh, poor people who lived in there. And Nordstrom's, very cleverly, realized that many of the people who lived in there were seniors and did not drive anymore, but certainly had the ability and willingness to spend money buying clothes. So Nordstrom's would actually put on a daily shuttle, in fact, I think they had three or four daily shuttles, to take people from the shores to their store and back. Their store was in a shopping mall, so absolutely there were people who used the shuttle to go and shop other than at Nordstrom's, and when we went, we certainly looked at other stores. But of course, we started at Nordstrom's, and the combination of feeling really good about them because of this shuttle and the fact that they had great quality products and great customer service meant that more often than not, we did end up buying stuff from Nordstrom's, whereas I would not have done so otherwise. It's a great example of a company that provided what Jay Bear calls utility, spelled Y-O-U-T-I-L-I-T-Y. And Jay Bear is the person I'm interviewing in today's podcast. I actually first aired this podcast when he had just released the book Utility, and it's a book that I cite regularly when I teach digital marketing classes or when I give talks about customer experience, because his whole focus in there is it's all about creating value and usefulness for customers. Enjoy the interview, and I will chat with you briefly at the end. I'm Jay Bear. I'm the president and founder of Convince and Convert. We're a social media and content marketing consultancy. We work with corporate clients and agencies throughout North America on optimizing uh, social media and content marketing programs. Uh, I'm the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Utility, Why Smart Marketing is About Help, Not Hype. Uh, our blog at convinceandconvert.com is one of the best read social media kind of content marketing blogs out there. I'm the host of the weekly Social Pros podcast, uh, and I'm a 20-something year veteran now of, uh, of digital marketing, which makes me feel, rightfully so, uh, very, very old. <laughs> hey, I get you. I put up my first website in 1995, so Good. Very <laughs> I think nice. I'm up there with you, Jay. <laughs> very nice. If you, ha- if you still have that website, that would be uh, spectacular. It's embarrassing. <laughs> do, you ever go to the, uh, do you ever go to the archive.org Yes, website? I have. I have. And occasionally that old one, I mean, it's still there. It was a tripod website. And it is so yeah. tacky looking, but you know, what the heck? We did what we could. <laughs> oh man, some of that stuff is just a crime against graphic design. It's really spectacular to, to uh to go look at it. Yeah. Well, I mean I didn't have flashing things and pattern backgrounds. At least I, I, <laughs> I was never that No, I did not do that. I was never at that level. <laughs> so what got you into this stuff in the first place, Jay? Well, I got I got into well, I was my, my original career was in politics. I was a, a political campaign consultant and uh, those were the pre-internet days, of course, but you learn a lot about marketing and, and psychology 
and segmentation and targeting when you're in politics because it's yes. all all about that. Um, so it was a really good foundation, uh, sort of on accident. And, uh, and then I went into client side marketing. I worked for a big company for a little while and, and worked for the government briefly. Uh, and I got involved in the internet literally almost accidentally. Um, I was working for the state of Arizona as a spokesperson. I was the spokesperson for the Department of Juvenile Corrections. So one of my jobs was to give tours of the juvenile prison system, hmm. which is uh, not even as good as I just made it sound. Uh, it was <laughs> not not a great gig. And, and uh, I was having beers with some friends of mine who had started the very first internet company in Arizona. And this was uh, 1993, I guess. And wow. Uh, they said, hey, this Internet company that we have created um, is starting to get a little bit bigger, and we don't know anything about marketing. And I said, well, that's okay, because when you say the word Internet, I don't know what that word means. <laughs> but I will do any job to not have to give another tour of this prison. <laughs> so I walked in the next morning and quit. Uh, and started to work for a internet company without ever having been on the internet, which was an wow. interesting, uh, interesting set of circumstances. Uh, and that company grew very quickly. And as it turns out, my partner in that business, uh, actually invented web hosting. So before, uh, you, if you wanted a website, you had to have your own server, like literally a dedicated computer to run that website. He invented the partitioning algorithm that made hosting possible so that you could have mm-hmm. multiple multiple sites on one box. And now, of course, Rackspace and companies like that, HostGator, have hundreds or thousands of sites uh, running off a single server. So he sort of invented that concept originally. Uh, and, of course, we had no idea at the time. But but the company got uh, kind of big kind of fast. And and I was there for a little while. And then I ended up uh, moving on to a different Internet startup and then another one and then another one and then started my own and then started this one. And so I've been doing this a long time. I, I tell people that I've only made two good decisions in my whole life. One was to convince my wife uh, to marry me, and that did take some convincing. Uh, <laughs> and the second was to get involved in the Internet and have the good sense to not get out. Right. Yes. Actually, your comment about getting out kind of reminds me of the um, Retail Council of Canada. In 2000, and 2000 or 2001, they closed their e-commerce committee, figuring it was a fad. <laughs> I think I think this still explains why Canadian retailers are way behind when it comes yeah, to the Internet. <laughs> They figured they had a, they had a lift. No no need to no need to get into this. That's great. Bizarre, totally bizarre. They have finally reopened it, but <laughs> there you go. I love. It. Now I've probably just made a bunch of enemies at the retail council. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, tell us a little bit about utility. You talk in your book about there being three facets of utility. Mm-hmm. What are those? So the, the the concept of utility, and I spell it Y O U utility in the book. Um, the concept of utility is that it's marketing so useful that people would pay for it, that it's marketing with inherent and intrinsic value. It's marketing that people actually want instead of marketing that companies think they need. It's the kind of thing that if you said, hey, uh, Mr. Customer or Ms. Customer, would you kick in a couple of dollars to receive this? They would say, yeah, you know what? I actually would give you a couple of dollars to receive that. Now, generally speaking, you don't charge people for it because it is marketing. It does benefit your organization eventually, but it, but it has so much intrinsic value that people really would give you money for it. And, and that's a, a high bar to clear, no doubt. Even with all the technology advances, uh, it's never been harder to, to grow and sustain audiences. We've never seen this yes. kind of competition for attention. Uh, and, and so my premise in that book 
is that the way to succeed in modern business is not to sell harder or shout louder, uh, but to be more useful and and treat your prospects, uh, your, your potential customers and your current customers, similar to how we treat one another as friends. And if you do that uh, and you give it enough time to work, uh, eventually it will work. And there's lots and lots of examples in the book of companies uh, doing that well. So is your belief then, Jay, that if you create something that is so that useful, it will just naturally, through word of mouth, people will find out about it? No, not necessarily, although certainly great utilities, things that really are inherently useful uh, and, and things that 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 aren't Trojan horses, right, that aren't useful, but they're actually a coupon. You know, you right. see some of that, too, sort of the faux utility, things that really are uh, useful tend to be passed along. They tend to trigger word of mouth and viralities because they are because they're genuinely useful. There's a great study uh, by Jonah Berger. Jonah is a terrific author. He wrote mm-hmm. the book Contagious. He's a Wharton Business School professor. In his book, he talks about this research program that they did uh, at the Wharton School where they looked at every single New York Times article for six months. So it was tens of thousands of articles. And they found that articles that were useful were forwarded 30% more than average. Well, of course they were, right? I mean, we crave useful things. Like people send recipes to each other all the time. Yes. Same premise, right? So marketing works the same way. So I wouldn't say that inherently all you have to do is build something useful and people will will consume it. I, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> but certainly if you do it well, you have a disproportionate likelihood of people sharing it. But, you know, my my premise is not that you should only do utility marketing, that you cannot um, that you can get away with doing no other marketing and advertising of sort of the legacy style. I, I just don't believe that to be true. Okay. Um, you know, it's called a marketing mix for a reason, right? That you do different <laughs> types of things in different circumstances. And, and certainly you have to sometimes use other forms of marketing to amplify your utility. What I mentioned in the book is that content is fire and social media is gasoline, mm-hmm. right? The, the best use case for social media is to draw attention to your useful content. Yes. So instead of treating social media like the world's shortest press release, Mm-hmm. like so many companies and individuals do, you're better off saying, hey, we made this useful thing, click here to see it, and you will actually benefit from it, right? That's the relationship. That's how they should, in theory, uh, work together. So I'm thinking, I mean, what we're seeing now is television stations, for instance, have finally clued into the fact that people are watching online. And so they're providing the content, but with forced ads at the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes during it. So basically, they're just transferring the model that they had from TV to the internet. Right. So this interruption marketing thing isn't going away. Are, are you essentially saying then that you can do interruption marketing, but the most effective way to do it is to at least in your ad be saying, yoo-hoo, I got something useful for you? Yeah, I think you can. You, you should take some of your interruption marketing budget and put it into useful content creation. Okay. Uh, and with the remainder of that interruption marketing budget, use that use that time, space, and attention to not necessarily trumpet your company per se, but trumpet your content. Right. right. So, one of the things we talked about in the book is the um, is the famous, uh, somewhat famous uh, uh, mobile app Sit or Squat mm-hmm. uh, from from Charmin, which which gives you crowdsourced uh, reviews of public toilets and whether or not they are clean or less so. Um, now, Charmin does a tremendous amount of television advertising, yep. uh, as well as point of sale, but never 
in history have they ever used one nickel of that budget to promote the application. Hmm. So instead of doing a 30-second commercial that says, look how soft our toilet paper is, what if they used one of their 30-second commercials to say, hey, and if you're looking for a great public restroom, get our mobile sit or squat app. Why do you think they're not doing that? Because the people who create content are not people who are responsible for sales. Now, that is an interesting point that I also wanted to talk to you about it, because I find it totally bizarre that sales and marketing are so separate in so many companies. I think that's going to be my next book, actually. Oh, that's the one I'm working on, Jay. Good. We'll, we'll work on it together. I mean, I, I believe, okay. I mean, and I said this the other day in a speech, um, that if you just sort of parachuted in from another time, right, like you had like the weird Victorian, you know, yeah. time machine, yeah. uh, and you just showed up here and you had no preconceived notions about corporate structure. And somebody said, well, we have this department that does marketing that creates demand. And then we have this other department, sales, that fulfills demand. The first thing you would say is, why are those different departments? Yeah, it's totally bizarre. It doesn't make any sense because everybody's looking to achieve the same objective. But the way we've set it up is that they, we, we, we pit them against one another. And then the other issue, the other reason why people like Charmin don't do that, don't, don't you know, use interruption marketing to drive awareness of utility is that is that utility requires patience, right? It's playing the long game. It's yeah. giving something some it's giving people something useful for free that eventually comes back around to your company. But that eventually is very, very difficult for some companies to stomach because they're not in the eventually business. They're in the by Friday business. Mm-hmm. Um, they want you to buy now. Yeah. Even though the real, you know, we don't spend enough time thinking about lifetime value, right? We, we think about, you know, today's value, and that's symptomatic of the kind of interruption marketing that, that we see every day. Well, I think to a large extent, though, that's uh, partly the result of the way our stock markets are structured. I mean, companies get rewarded Definitely. for short-term results, and it's Definitely. frustrating because I don't know, I would know how love, the heck you get around that. It's impossible to, um, it's impossible to do this uh, in, in any sort of, uh, intellectually rigorous way, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, I find that private companies have an easier time with utility than public companies. That's what it seems like. Yeah, and it's not a small versus big issue. It's not a it's not a company size issue. It's a culture issue. It's it's an issue of you know what we're we're in this for the long the long haul, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it's harder harder to achieve that mindset uh, when you've got to worry about you know monthly and quarterly results. So are you aware of public companies that are actually managing to do it well? Oh, sure. I mean, Clorox does it really well. They've got some great utilities. Um, Charmin's a good example. They don't necessarily advertise it, but they're a public company. Hilton, uh, Hilton Worldwide is a a very significant case study in the book. Yeah, actually, when you mentioned uh, your talk at the conference last week or the week before, and you mentioned the Hilton Suggests example, And I tweeted out about it at the time while you were talking, and they replied right away. I thought, good for oh, you yeah. guys. They're on top of it. They're <laughs> on top of it. Absolutely. That is so wonderful. I was, uh, I was in um, Dallas uh, not long after I saw you yeah. and speaking at their social media club, and I was talking about Hilton Suggests, and I had no idea that this was the case. There was a woman in the audience who does the Hilton Suggests program <laughs> in Dallas, um, so she was the one who sent the tweet that I actually use in the presentation. So that was an interesting oh, cool. sort of kismet moment. Yeah, that's uh, nice. Cool. Yeah. You write in the book that um, marketing needs to de-emphasize tasks like thought leadership and white papers. 
and focus more mm-hmm. on sales-like activities like diagnosing needs and internal barriers to purchase. Is yeah. there still yeah. a role then for brand and brand building? Oh, I think absolutely, uh, because at some point that brand and that perception of brand is a factor in decision making. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now, if you analyze people's marketing, it, it appears to be the only decision in many cases, and it's not. Um, you know, the, the problem, and I don't have anything inherently against white papers and thought leadership. My problem is that they are almost always self-referential, yes. right? It's about we're great as opposed to what do you need? Uh, and, and so I just think it's misplaced, um, it's misplaced effort in some cases. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, there is a lot of wisdom to the we want to do business with people that we know, like, yeah. and trust. And the same thing is true in companies, most definitely in business-to-business yes. business circumstances. So if if at the end of the day, like, look, you know what? These product features are about the same, price is about the same. I'm going to go with the people that I like and trust. Uh, and that's where brand building becomes really important. Yeah, absolutely. You had commented also in the book that um, often fans will become such good fans that they'll actually answer questions from a from people before you even can as the brand, which is obviously a wonderful thing if that happens. On the other hand, what if they answer in a way that as a brand you're not comfortable with or if they give misinformation? Mm -hmm. How do brands handle that? Or how should they handle it? That's a great question. Uh, I've seen that Mm -hmm. in several cases, right, where the good news is you've created this, this community where existing customers feel the desire to assist uh, new customers uh, and that removes some of the customer service burden from your own resources internally. Mm -hmm. But sure, I mean, customers, I mean, the good news is that the customers are typically going to answer those kind of questions through the prism of their own belief system, which may not be exactly what the official company line is, but I think you need to look at that as a terrific kind of focus group market research opportunity, number one. Uh, but you definitely have to continue to monitor it, right? You can't just yes. let it go on autopilot. If if a if a customer if a customer says something uh, in a way that is different than what you would say it, I, I think you need to leave that alone and say you know, what the, the reality is reality. Yeah. Um, you know, their reality becomes their truth, um, and, and and to come in there and say, well, we would actually we would actually use a different slogan to describe this statement. I, I think that gets a little icky. Uh, but if somebody says something that is that is just not true, that is that is incorrect and, and can create uh, a poor outcome for use of the product or the service, then I think it's perfectly reasonable for the company to step in and say, yeah, we really appreciate mm-hmm. Bill for waiting in here, but you might also think about this and that. I, I'm active, as uh, you probably know from reading the book, in a in a forum about uh, pellet smoking, which is a form of uh, uh, of, of uh, smoked meats and barbecuing. Uh, and that happens all the time. It's a very active forum, not a huge, not a huge group. It's maybe a, a couple thousand people, but very active. And, and there are uh, the most active people are not representatives of the company. They're they're hobbyists like myself, uh, and so they're always answering questions. In fact, you know the the community answers questions faster than the company ever can. But in many cases, the company will weigh in and say, "Well, yes, that's one way to do brisket." But we also recommend doing brisket this way, right? So well, that's a tactful way to handle it. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I did have some difficulty with in the book is you talk about essentially about appification being the future of marketing, creating apps. Mm -hmm. 
My difficulty with that is it seems to me that you can easily get your devices so overfilled with apps that you forget what you have. And I mean, my iPhone's a perfect example of that. How can companies then, you know, how do you deal with that? If everybody's producing these useful someday maybe apps and you download it because you think it might be useful someday maybe, but if you've got 50 apps on your phone, when that day comes, odds are you're not going to remember it. Well, I think if it's I think if it's good enough, um, you will remember it. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why people don't remember apps is because they are overstuffed, mm-hmm. right? So the whole reason why why I believe that that appification will occur is that the ex- the current sort of corporate website um, has to serve way too many masters, right? So it has to it has to appeal to current customers, to prospective customers, to employees, to media. Um, you know, they're, they're massively schizophrenic. And, and the only evidence you need of that is to, you know, how many websites do you go to that have the sort of sliding graphic thing at the top, right, which which rotates and shows you five different stories? Mm-hmm. I mean, they can't even figure out what's the most important thing on the website. They can only figure out which is the most important five things on the website. Right. Um, it's a terrible customer experience. Yes. Uniformly terrible. And it's because it has to do all of these different things. And it does most of them mediocre at best, right? So what's great about apps, good apps, is that they do one or two things particularly well. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't try to do everything. And that's why I believe that eventually what will happen is that you will use apps for your your primary relationships and and your primary sort of task-oriented circumstances with companies, and the website will be like everything else. It'll be like the, you know, the, 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 the backstop for all the other crap that you don't need very often, but every once in a while you need it and it's not task or action oriented, so you have to go to the site. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, all the cream um, will, will be skimmed off and built into very purpose-built apps, and then everything else will be uh, on the site. And you see that already with transactional, you know, look at like Southwest Airlines apps and Porter and things like that, right, that are very, the apps themselves do one thing, book a flight or make sure your flight's on time. All the other stuff you need to do, manager miles and all that stuff, is is best done uh, on the website. And, and I think that same circumstance will happen uh, in, in a much broader uh, set of companies. Okay, but you presumably fly a whole bunch of different airlines. Are you going to have 10 different apps on your phone, one for each oh, I already, I already do, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. I already do. Because I know I look through my phone and I've got a bunch of apps on there. I can't even remember what the heck they were. Maybe which says something bad about how they've named them. <laughs> But. Yeah, well, I mean, and the, the problem is what what a lot of branded apps are doing today. A lot of company apps is what they're what they're they're making the same mistakes they made at the website, and they're making it in the app, which is well, let's have this app do a bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. right? And that's totally it's less is more, right? Do one thing, right? Do one thing, or maybe two in the app, and then if you need to do other things, build a second app mm-hmm. that does other things, as opposed to well, let's just replicate the web experience in an app environment. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of online shopping, should companies be developing various types of comparison shopping apps? Well, I think it depends on whether you can add something to that equation that can't be better delivered elsewhere, right? If, if you can do something that is inherently useful, mm-hmm. um, that, that you can't get on Amazon's app or somebody else's app very easily, well, then maybe. Right. But but to do something that's 30% worse than Amazon just because it's not on Amazon, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good luck with that. Well, and you also talk in the book about in terms of utility 
I mean, one of the examples you give is this uh, swimming pool company where it's not so much that they've built apps, it's that their website itself is totally focused on huge amounts of useful content. So that is another approach that I think probably would work better for certainly a lot of smaller companies that don't have the budget to be doing a bunch of specific apps. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and they could certainly turn that blog uh, into an app very easily. Um, But, but that's not a transactional site, right? It's an, it's a, it's purely educational. And so for now um, uh, in this snapshot in time, the longer form kind of blog on the website makes sense. Although I would argue that eventually a company like that, which has you know a thousand blog posts about how to buy a swimming pool, may go to a mobile app environment that's that's very video oriented, right? That it's, yes. it's tons of different videos, whether it's you know video from the field or or just somebody explaining it via video, you know, in thirty forty five second videos uh, that you can then access from a mobile phone or or a tablet. Uh, I would imagine that would be the next phase of iteration for that kind of program. Yeah, that would make sense. You were talking about how companies manage, for instance, customer comments and feedback, and what if they say things that you wouldn't agree with as a brand. We've seen increasingly situations where a company will say something on Twitter and it flares up. And sometimes they are truly stupid things that they've said. But there are other times, I mean, there was one last week, and I can't remember exactly what it was now, but it was a company that was trying to raise money for kids or something. And the way they had written it offended some people. But I looked at it and, you know, you could very easily have interpreted it as something completely different. So how do you expect companies to deal with that kind of situation? And and is that ultimately going to just make companies more and more reluctant to even take the risk of trying anything in in media like Twitter? I hope not. Um, I mean, the problem with, with social media is that it is by definition short. Uh, and therefore it by definition lacks context. Mm-hmm. It's the same reason that people get out of, out of joint when you send them an email because they didn't like the way you wrote it or whatever. Um, it happens every day. But mm-hmm. the reality is the same thing happens offline. I mean, people, people have television commercials. I mean, look at the Super Bowl. Uh, you look at the American Super Bowl and you look at the TV commercials. You can be in the room with friends that you actually, you know, have a lot in common with. Yes. And a commercial will, will 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 be on and half the people in the room love the commercial and half the people in the room hate the commercial. Yes. So there is no universal uh truth in terms of what is appropriate and and where you really get in trouble is humor. You know, humor is very um circumstantial. That's a really tricky uh situation, sticky wicket. So um so so what I mean by that is you know, you're going to offend 20% of the people, period. The difference is that in social media you can find it, right? Well, it puts the, a magnifying glass to that twenty percent. If twenty percent, if twenty percent of the people who, who who you know get this magazine don't like your magazine ad and don't like the way it was phrased, you don't have any evidence of that. And that's why sometimes social media gets way more attention than frankly it deserves, right? Because it's public. Because it's public. That's the difference. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. Well, and I see that with Twitter. I mean, you look at the statistics on the numbers of Twitter users, and it's completely much, much lower than the impression you'd get if you listen to the media, because the media is all on Twitter. Yeah, it's 220, you know, 225, 225 million monthly active users now, which is nothing to shake a stick at, right? I mean, that's a lot of people. But but still, um, in comparison to yeah. Facebook, for example, um, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty small. Um, yeah. It's a third. Um, if that, so, um, 
Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting time. I mean, you know, the fear around social media is in many cases um, overwrought because it is inherently public, and we can find it and talk about it and things like that. What I've said to many executives is, look, people are already talking about your company negatively. You just don't know it. Yeah. And I'll tell you what: if you're scared about your employees saying something crazy on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, do this. Why don't you set up a system where you can randomly read a few of your employees' emails that they're sending to customers or listen in on what your employees you know, listen in on what your employees are saying to customers on the phone? You will freak out. <laughs> right? You will completely freak out. But we just assume because we don't do that, we just assume that everything is perfect in those channels and it of course is not. Uh but because social media is is especially Twitter is just sort of out there. Um, it creates this this sort of angst. But what I always tell people is, look, you know, if 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 you don't trust your team and your employees to make the right decisions in social media, you don't have a social media problem. You have a hiring problem and a training problem. So it seems to me that when it comes to social media. On the one hand, you've got big companies that are challenged with the need for speed and flexibility, and small companies are challenged with the need for time and manpower. What are your thoughts on that and, and on how companies, large and small, their relative strengths and weaknesses and how they can deal with those in social media? It's kind of a big question, I guess. Um, I think I think the answer is actually the same uh, in both cases, which is to make social and content and utility, a skill, not a job. Okay. To, to broaden the base of participation, whether it's finding ways to get customers involved through um, user-generated content or, as we talked about, having customers help answer questions in community forums, whether it's having employees participate in social and use employees to help amplify messages. Um, I, I'm a, a, on the board of a software company called Advocate, mm-hmm. um, ADD, Advocate, which helps um, – Companies get their employees involved in social media and, and helps, you know, uses them to amplify company messages, things like that. So the, where, where, where all those issues are in terms of flexibility and time, where they get problematic is when it's one or a few people who are responsible for all of this. And they're sort of carrying all of this weight on, on their shoulders. Yeah. When you say, look, let's have some people sort of doing command and control. But but push the responsibility for content creation and social media and management and oversight uh, out to the margins, it becomes much, much easier and much more efficient. Although when companies were trying to do that three or four years ago, it wasn't working because these other people just said, oh, I don't have time for that. I've got a busy job. Yeah. Has that changed? Yeah, we weren't ready. It's yeah. totally changed. Yeah, we just weren't ready for it. I mean, it, you know. That, it's the, that, that was the postmodern version um, of the Commerce Council saying we don't need to exist anymore. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think people just weren't ready for it. They weren't as used to it in their personal lives. So they the whole notion of it was kind of scary. We will get to the point, right, where, I mean, think about LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, now, not everybody uses LinkedIn progressively or proactively, but in some corners of business, uh, you know, 95% of your employees have a LinkedIn profile. Yes. The same would have an email address. Well, I think the same thing will the same thing will happen with Twitter, um, and the same thing uh, may happen with Instagram and, and other things to come. That it's just it's just part of your um, it's like having a cell phone number or an email address. It'll just be part of your thing. Do you think LinkedIn groups have any value, or is it just a bunch of marketers all talking to each other? 
totally circumstantial. There are fantastic LinkedIn groups out there. Certainly the, the likelihood that somebody who's in a LinkedIn group is a marketer or a salesperson is, is disproportionate just because of what it does. Yeah. Uh, but there's great LinkedIn groups out there. Okay. Uh, and then there's tons of crappy ones. But that's true of anything. That's true of Facebook groups. It's true of community forums. It's true of, uh, it's true of, you know, uh, Rotary clubs. It's true of chambers of commerce. It's true of everything. Mm-hmm. So if a company were not already engaged at all in social media, on what basis would you, like, what would you suggest they start with? I would, I would, does it depend totally on what the company is? or it, To some degree it does, but, but I think uh, not knowing the answer to that question, I, I would say the best place to start is, is on the reactive side uh, to say, okay, how can we use social to serve our existing customers better? Mm-hmm. How can we answer them faster? How can we provide um, better support? How can we tie our supply chain together better, right? So, so think about social as a um, loyalty and and customer satisfaction circumstance first. Okay. Get that get that dialed in, and then think about how do I maybe do this more proactively from a marketing communications standpoint. Okay. And the final question, I guess, just from a marketing communication standpoint, we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier, is this whole notion of in an increasingly crowded and competitive online space, how the hell do you get attention? I mean, you can create something useful, yeah, and that will spread virally, you hope. But I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who have great blogs and great content that just aren't seeing the light of day because they're overcrowded. Yeah, I mean, it's not a it's not a meritocracy. Uh, but one of the reasons it's overcrowded is because they're creating blogs and content that is a topic that somebody else has already covered. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to you have to find places that aren't already saturated and and work in those places. And that's why a big part of utility is to make the story bigger, right? To find ways that you can be useful to your customers or prospective customers that transcend the transaction, that don't necessarily require you to talk about your products and services per se, mm-hmm. but something that is related to your products and services. Just this morning, I got an example from the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, Cleveland Clinic, of course, a very prominent um, uh, healthcare system in the U.S., by, by, by most uh, courts, the second or third most prominent or, or famous, if you will, um, hospital system in the, in the state. Uh, they had uh, a new infographic that they just published, yeah. uh, which was, should you take acetaminophen or ibuprofen? Huh. And they had this whole checklist on that. Well, if this is your problem or this or do this or that, it was really interesting because that's a common question, right? My yes. kids have asked me that. Should I take, you know, Advil or Tylenol? Right. Uh, and, and it's really interesting because, you know, they're not... They don't sell ibuprofen. They don't sell acetaminophen, not in any classic sense. Mm-hmm. But yet, being in the healthcare business, they have the opportunity to engage in that kind of dialogue with us. Um, and, and so that's a great example of a utility that, that makes the story bigger, right? That isn't about, hey, come here for a broken arm, mm-hmm. but is still on topic. And that's the kind of thing that will get spread that they could amplify with advertising, like we were talking about with Charmin. I don't know if they will, but they could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how you break through the clutter, right, is by giving people things that are genuinely interesting um, that in some cases aren't necessarily um, tied to a buy now. So then really it is coming back to straight brand building because the value to them in doing something like that is all about building their brand. It is. It is. It's it's um, it, it inserts that brand into your life in a circumstance that ordinarily it wouldn't be present. Mm-hmm. Um, but the brand, it is brand building, but you're building brand uh, positioning that's not about features and benefits and products and services. Right. But the brand itself stands for helpfulness and information. Yeah. Okay. 
Is there anything I should have asked you and I haven't? Anything you'd like to add? Mm. No, I, I just I would just say that um, you know we're seeing such a huge shift now towards visual content yes. uh, across the board: infographics, videos. Instagram, Vine, Pinterest, um, you know, photos work infinitely better on Facebook and Google Plus than they did in the past. And so when people are thinking about utility and content and social and all that, you know, we're we're at the point now where you need to be able to tell your story visually. Mm -hmm. That that, that is the coin of the realm now. And that's changed, even since I wrote the book to some degree, it's changed the skill sets that are necessary to do this well in some cases. Um, You know, we used to look for people who are exceptional writers and while that's still important, uh, what I recommended to many people recently is, look, if you if you haven't done this before, one of your goals next year needs to be to go take a photography class. Mm-hmm. I think actually this has got to be a great time for the artsies in our society because the demand, the need for people who can photograph and film and write well is higher than ever before. So, uh, you know, I think if colleges aren't teaching students how to apply those skills that they're learning in the arts, they sure should be because the opportunities are there. No doubt. Yeah. So there's hope for my son, the artsy. (laughs) Good. Okay. Thank you very much, Jay. I really appreciated talking to you, and I very much enjoy reading your work and listening to you, and hope we'll have a chance to meet again. You bet. Thanks for the support. I appreciate it. I'm not convinced that I agree with him that applications will take over from websites. I I still think, as I argued in the interview, that people aren't going to want hundreds of separate applications on their phones. Uh, And when you have lots of different ones, it's way too easy to forget that you have them. I know I've certainly experienced that, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. However, he did have some really great suggestions for what your company can do right now to make your website way more practical and help it get attention without having to spend a whole ton of money developing an app. And that basically is by answering the questions that people are likely to have, being incredibly helpful and useful on your website. That's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, I would love to get your feedback and hear your comments or questions. You can always call me toll free at 1-866-544-9262. Or you can send me an email, tema at frankreactions.com. That's T-E-M as in marketing A at frankreactions.com. You can find me on Twitter. It's simply at Tema Frank and on LinkedIn, and most of the other usual suspects. If you have not subscribed to this podcast already on iTunes or Stitcher, why not do so? And while you're at it, why not tell some of your friends and colleagues about it? And if you don't have any friends and colleagues who you think might be interested, you can just share with the world in general by going to iTunes or Stitcher and leaving a review. It's really, really wonderful when people do that because not only does it make me feel good to know that people are actually out there listening and thinking about what we have to say on the show, but also because it helps others discover the podcast. That's all for today. I look forward to chatting with you again next week. Bye. Bye.